Welcome, everybody, to the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's podcast on America, China, and the struggle for the 21st century. Uh, I'm John Yu, a fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor at the University of California at Berkeley Law School, and I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Oslin, a.k.a. Misha. Uh, say hello to everybody, Misha. Hello, everybody. John, uh, where have been, we been? I've been in rehab because I'm suffering from McRib withdrawal. Uh, there's been a lack of pork in the United States, but I understand there's been a lack of pork in China, too. What about you, Michelle? Oh, indeed. Last months? Indeed. Uh, I, I've been in the East Coast Witness Reprotection Program uh, coming <laughs> from uh, the West Coast. They don't really like West Coasters out in the East Coast. So uh, you really can't tell people you've come from California. But if, if you do, they immediately ask, do you guys have electricity out there? And the answer increasingly is no. So um, they're, they're feeling very self-satisfied out on the East Coast these days. Uh, we're, I know we're running this podcast because we've got the Blue Yeti tied to an exercise bicycle, and he's continuing right. to pedal until <laughs> the supply is energy. Fast Once the show's over, he can take a break. <laughs> well, let's, uh, well, we have a two-part two agenda today. Because we've been away so uh, long, we thought we would start with uh, a wonderful interview with Jillian Melcher of the Wall Street Journal so that we can get into a discussion of the Hong Kong protests, which have only escalated since we had our last show. And then after she's done, we're going to turn to a discussion of Misha's wonderful piece in the Wall Street Journal last week about uh, some of the economic and food pressures on the Chinese regime. My favorite topic, pressures on food. So let's uh, turn now to Jillian Melcher. She's an editorial page writer at the Wall Street Journal, where she covers politics, activism, higher education, among other subjects. But most relevant for our program, she has been to Hong Kong three times since June to cover the political crisis, where she's written, I found a number of compelling articles on the ground event about the underground events going on in Hong Kong right now. Uh, before the Wall Street Journal, she worked as an investigative reporter for Heat Street and National Review and is senior fellow for the Independent Women's Forum. She was also a Tony Blankley fellow at the Steamboat Institute and a Robert Novak fellow. She's reported from China, Hong Kong, Macau, Taiwan, Iraq, Ukraine, and elsewhere. She's appeared on Fox News, Fox Business, MSNBC, and Real Time with Bill Maher. Uh, she's even been featured in Cosmo, the New York Post, and Detroit News, and other publications. This is the most interesting. I mean, she is a native of Cheyenne, Wyoming, and an alumna of Hillsdale College. So, Jillian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you uh, join uh, Misha and me. Uh, let me start off uh, before we get right to Hong Kong itself. How does someone end up from Cheyenne, Wyoming, all the way to cover the street protests in Hong Kong. What a journey you've already had <laughs> to get there. And let's you know, add that on the way, you ended up stopping in Colorado and had a wild night of drinks with me and other friends at a conservative <laughs> conference at Steamboat. <laughs> That's right. You must well, be one of the most famous graduates in the history of Hilltop <laughs> College. You're probably not even 35 years old yet. <laughs> well, thanks. You know, I think growing up out West, uh, we really value our freedom. It's kind of a, a cowboy a cowboy culture. Um, so it's something that has interested me since I was young. 
And I, I love doing foreign correspondence. And I think the Hong Kong story is just extraordinarily important. Um, it, it's not only a scrappy small population fighting for their freedom against these incredible odds, but I think it's also really important because what it's what it's revealing about China and China's behavior. One thing I've been struck with, and I'm sure other people have by reading your accounts, is that you, to me, have exhibited a lot of personal bravery to uh, get right onto the street, right at the front lines between the police and protesters. Uh, before uh, Misha comes in, are you uh, uh, sort of um, like a cowboy yourself in that you <laughs> grew up in Cheyenne, Wyoming? These kind of things don't uh, worry you, or you're not scared off by a little uh, uh, riot police and tear gas. Actually, I'm in Berkeley. I'm not scared of the tear gas, but you're not scared of, uh, you know, disorder, craziness, uh, you know, growing up on a Western frontier or farm. This is all. Uh, you know, this is all just a regular day at work for you. <laughs> well, not, not quite a regular day at work. And thank you. But I, I do want to say, I think the people who are showing the real courage are the protesters who are there um, day in and day out, who are going to have to deal with the consequences. Um, and we've already seen thousands of arrests. We've seen young people in their late teens, early 20s, who are risking up to 10 years in prison. So while I can go there for a day, um, this is the rest of their lives on the line. So I, I think that's part of the courage of this story, that when you see people that are engaged in a fight for freedom that's gotten this violent, that's gotten this gritty, um, it's important for the world to be able to see that and to be able to understand what's going on. And then just one last question. Uh, do you think uh, that things are going to get worse from here? You just mentioned the violence we've had uh, mm -hmm. just uh, in the last day. Uh, I think some people say an escalation in the violence where it's now entered uh, college and university campuses. Uh, you've had a student die. Uh, you've had uh, shootings, people being killed. You've had a lot of people leaving Hong Kong. Uh, do you think the violence is going to get worse even from what you've seen so far? And, and maybe describe what you have seen uh, so yes. far. So I'm very concerned about the, the future in Hong Kong and what's going to happen. So the first day I was there was June 12th. Um, I actually got in, in really early in the morning, dropped off my luggage at the hotel and headed pretty much straight to the protests. And that was the day that people were outside trying to prevent passage of this extradition bill that would have left anyone in Hong Kong vulnerable to be hauled off to the mainland, subjected to their system of justice, which we know is no justice at all, um, mm. imprisoned, possibly subjected to torture. And what I saw that day was uh, thousands of people showing up and peacefully protesting and the, the police department responding with tear gas. And it, it, it was really shocking. I, you know, these are a lot of young people were standing there with um, sort of flimsy surgical masks on and just this incredible barrage of tear gas and a sense of panic, but also a sense of solidarity. Um, we ended up kind of running back. I'm covering it, so I'm, I'm following the protesters, but we ended up hunkered down in this upscale mall um, where I used to go watch movies when I lived in Hong Kong. So it was just completely <laughs> surreal. It almost felt like zombie apocalypse level surreal. Um, but I think that was an important day because that was the starting point. And since then, we've seen uh, police really escalate the level of violence. Um, you know, just an incredible amount of tear gas fired, uh, rubber bullets. Uh, one of the most poignant moments this summer happened when a first aider, a person who was volunteering to try to keep people safe, 
um, had her eye shot out. Uh, since then, we've seen on October, around October 1st, which was National Day, um, that weekend was the first time a protester was shot with a gun by a police officer. Since then, two others have been. Um, no one's been shot to death yet that we know of, but we've also seen a protester fall uh, to his yes. death. So that's that's kind of the escalating level of violence. Now, what is also happening is uh, protesters were able to secure the withdrawal of this extradition bill. So that was an important step. But I think we've also seen Beijing really double down and suggest that they're not going to allow Hong Kong to return to the status quo. They're not going to respect the legal autonomy that they promised they would give Hong Kong. In fact, what you've seen is Beijing saying that the joint declaration, which is the international agreement with Great Britain that sets up Hong Kong's legal autonomy, says one country, two systems, that that, that document is no longer uh, legally binding, that it's merely symbolic. And then you have the Central Committee meet in, Chinese Communist Party Central Committee meet in late October and say that they're going to move forward with integrating Hong Kong into the greater Bay region, that they, they plan a patriotic education campaign, that they're planning on uh, pushing forward national security legislation. This is what senior officials are saying. And these are things that Hong Kong protesters have seen as threats to their freedom in the past and have managed to defeat. And I think now you've seen Beijing double down, say we're going to try to force this through all at once. And what's really unfortunate that's happening is, you know, you had, earlier in the summer, millions of people taking to the streets peacefully protesting. It was incredibly moving. You, there's one guy who springs to mind who is carrying his young child, I want to say maybe like less than two years old, with a sign that said freedom isn't free. But I think because of all this escalation, both on the part of Beijing and the police force, uh, you have some protesters who are losing hope that peaceful protest is enough. And unfortunately, a very small minority have also resorted to violence. And I think that makes the situation overwhelmingly dangerous. Uh, it, it deprives the movement of some of its moral authority. And I, I think it also gives Beijing a pretext to crack down on Hong Kong. Well, Jillian, uh, can I actually jump in right, right there and ask you a little bit about that violence? Um, you know, the first weeks of this protest were all very um, peaceful. And uh, certainly, as you said, the moral authority was on the side uh, of the demonstrators uh, and the students. But it has become, you know, scenes that are really open urban warfare in a lot of cases. What do you understand to be the cause of this shift away from the peaceful tactics to the tactics that began uh, with with smashing windows, breaking into the Legislative Council and the like? Uh, do we understand who's been doing that exactly, how they're connected with the other students and the like? Yeah, so it's a tricky question, who exactly, because I think a lot of these protesters want to protect their identity. Um, when I've interviewed some of the protesters who are geared up uh, in a way that they're clearly ready for a clash with the police. Um, a lot of them say they don't believe that peaceful protest works anymore. They don't believe that that will be enough to protect their freedom. And a lot of them also say, you know, if, if the police are behaving this violently, we need to defend ourselves. But I think while that's, under, well, while that's understandable in a way, while it's emotionally understandable, um, it is really damaging. I mean, you've seen Beijing put out propaganda suggesting that all of the protesters are behaving in a, a way that's even possibly terroristic. Um, they've used this to, you know, kind of clamp down on any mainland support to create a dominant narrative in China that these protesters are out of control, that they're rioters. 
Um, they've used it to muddy the waters about what these protesters are actually fighting for. And I think it's also really unfortunate when you see a minority of protesters behaving in this way, because we have to remember this movement started out with millions of people who've taken to the streets to peacefully protest. Um, the police have denied permits for protest, which is a way of criminalizing dissent. Uh, if you protest and you're found to have participated in an unauthorized assembly, you can spend up to five years in prison. If you're deemed a rioter, and that means just being present while someone else is engaged in menacing behavior, you're risking up to 10 years in prison. So I think what we've seen is, although public support for democracy is overwhelming, I, I think many protesters, many Hong Kongers, are thinking that this is too dangerous to go out right now. So you're seeing where once it was millions, it's now thousands or tens of thousands. And I think the hardliners, the people who are out actually engaging in these violent protests, while they are a minority, I, I think it's just heartbreaking that they've come to represent this movement. From the Chinese perspective, um, and you've talked about some of the ways in which uh, the uh, both the Hong Kong uh, authorities, you know, specifically, but also uh, with influence from Beijing, are trying to um, delegitimize the protesters. Um, what's your sense on on uh, the mainland's um, surprise at actually what's happened? Um, did they mm -hmm. have any anticipation that we would be in what is this month four now? Of, this is, of we're protests? actually month month six. Month six. Incredibly, okay. You know, we yeah. lose time out here in California, as, <laughs> as John well knows. Um, month six. Exactly. So what what have you picked up from uh, people talking about what Beijing anticipated, especially in relate and, and, and Carrie Lam in mm -hmm. relation to the 2014 protests? Well, you know, I think the 2014 protests, we're talking about the umbrella movement. That was students protesting um, for democracy. But I think what changed, what's different about this particular movement is the extradition bill was a threat to anyone in Hong Kong. Um, it was a threat to journalists. It was a threat to lawyers. It was a threat to dissidents. But it was also a real threat to business people who knew that right. the threat of extradition could be used to shake them down, to coerce them into corrupt behavior, that at any point you'd have the threat of being hauled off to China um, sort of lingering over you. So I think this protest movement has included not just young people uh, like we saw in the 2014 Umbrella Movement. It's really been everyone in society. And by everyone, I mean absolutely everyone. It's, it's been really uh, quite remarkable to go out and see not just students protesting, but uh, groups of grandmas, uh, people in wheelchairs, um, people with young children from all walks of life. So I think support for this has been really broad. I think it's completely freaked the Chinese government out. Uh, mm -hmm. Their concern is they know that protest movements can be contagious. Um, if you look at what happened in China in 1989, the Tiananmen Square uh, protests, those took place in the context of anti-communist uh, protests and revolutions throughout Europe. Uh, China is looking at that. It's looking at the air. And they also spring. spread throughout China, by the way. We always forget yeah. that. It wasn't just in Beijing. It was in cities all around China. And we've got to keep in mind, this is also happening in a moment where the Chinese government, which derives its legitimacy from uh, not the, the consent of the people, but from economic prosperity, from the, the social compact that says, basically, you give up your political rights, but we'll make you rich. Um, that's not being threatened. So I think this is something that's been very alarming to Beijing, that at just the point that the trade war is imposing some pain uh, that may undermine some of its legitimacy, that at the same time you have uh, basically, um, in some respects, what looks a lot like a revolution in Hong Kong.
So the big question, I guess, for folks in Washington and, and really around much of the world is, when do the Chinese go in? Well, how long do they wait? How long do they let the these very this small, as you said, plucky group of demonstrators uh, essentially thumb their nose at Beijing? What what do you get when you're on the the streets there? Well, so at the beginning of the summer, I think what was on everyone's mind is uh, they're amassing in Shenzhen. They're going to roll in the tanks. This is going to be Tiananmen 2.0. But I think what we've since seen since then has been a little bit more subtle. I would argue that the crackdown in Hong Kong has already begun. And what we're seeing is the arrests of well over a thousand protesters at this point. Uh, they're facing up to 10 years in prison. We're also seeing that if you support the protests, you may end up on a blacklist. So the government mm -hmm. has most notably with Cathay Pacific um, right. gone to the airline and said, hey, if, if you know of any employees who've supported these protests, you need to fire them. So you're not only facing legal repercussions, it's something that could cost you your job. Now, if you go out on the streets now, you can almost be guaranteed that you're going to be tear gassed. Uh, you're at risk of rubber bullets, you're at risk of real bullets. And on top of that, we've seen um, quite a few pro-democracy activists and politicians uh, attacked by thugs. Um, these have been pretty brutal. One guy that I, I met with, uh, he actually thought that they were trying to kill him. They jumped him. He was laying on the ground in fetal position. They broke uh, fingers on both of his hands. I mean, this was really brutal. So I think Beijing's strategy right now is to try to intimidate Hong Kongers to make it too risky to protest. But I think a lot of Hong Kongers have the sense that if we don't fight now for our freedom, that we're never going to have the opportunity again, that right now is the do or die moment for their civilization. Um, so I, I don't anticipate that things are going to calm down anytime soon. I think we'll see significant escalation on both sides. And just a last question. You, you mentioned you had lived in Hong Kong before. When was that? Um, well, I actually first lived there in 2009. I was a Bartley fellow for the Wall Street Journal. So oh. it was my first job out of college. Uh, went out there and was trying to figure out how Beijing was controlling the elections, uh, rigging them in Macau. So it's completely surreal to go back. I used to live in Wan Chai, um, great little neighborhood on Hong Kong Island, and it's been an epicenter of protest. It's, it's just completely surreal to see outside of my apartment, you know, right. massive so clashes between protesters and police. So given that you, you lived there before, you know what Hong Kong uh, was like, uh, will it ever go back? Can it ever go back? Is are, are we seeing the end of the Hong Kong that we've all thought about and has been so popular in, in our imaginations and in the world's economy for so long? You know, that is exactly the question that my editors wanted me to explore uh, last time I went there. And I think the conclusion I reached is... Yeah, in a lot of ways, this is the end of Hong Kong. We're seeing the erosion of one country, two systems. We're seeing Chinese threats to Hong Kong's legal autonomy. Um, right now, people have no confidence in the chief executive, no confidence in the legislature, no confidence in the police force. And I think the courts have kind of been a last bastion, um, but I, I think we're going to see them increasingly under attack, too. So while it's the end of Hong Kong as we know it, I, I think the other thing to point out is that this is also forging a Hong Kong identity that is distinct from China. And so while, while I think that this is the end of Hong Kong as we know it, I don't think that this is the end of the struggle between Hong Kongers and the Chinese government. And I'm really curious to see where this is going to go. Well, that's great. Thank you. Well, Jillian, that uh, brings us to the end of the interview, but we hope you'll, uh, uh, A, return to Hong Kong and keep reporting for 
the Wall Street Journal and really all American readers. And second, you'll come back on the show uh, after your next trip and set of articles. But thank Absolutely. you very much for joining us. This thank you. Well, Jillian, thank you again for just an outstanding uh, insight into what's going on in Hong Kong. One of those, whether you think it's a black swan or or a gray rhino, we caught by surprise or we should have known it was about to happen. Uh, this has probably become one of the, the most important stories in international politics and international relations today. And we, we really appreciate uh, what you what you've done, as well as what you have uh, talked to us about today, John. What did you What did you think about Jillian's take on uh, the way that the protests have evolved, and more importantly, where we are going from here? I have to confess, I'm a little pessimistic. Actually, I don't see how things are going to end in a peaceful way. Uh, everything she uh, reported, which seems consistent with what we're getting from other news stories on the front pages is that the students, young people, much of the Hong Kong population uh, doesn't seem to show any inclination to step back, to de-escalate, to re really try to go back to the way things were before they, as she said, they seem to think, see this as their moment to press for a democracy. Uh, at the same time, it, it seems that the Chinese regime, one lesson they learned from Tiananmen and then from the collapse of the Soviet Union is uh, not to let these uh, kind of popular democratic protest movements grow. Uh, and clearly, uh, China has the upper hand in terms of people, money, resources, armed force. I, I can't see how Hong Kong, uh, the people in Hong Kong uh, prevail in this confrontation. Uh, so either there'll be some kind of violent, I'm worried, some kind of violent event where the police and then even the People's Liberation Army really crack down. And then I think a lot of people from Hong Kong are going to have to flee. And I hope they come, you know, the, the United States welcomes them with open arms and the other countries in Asia, even though this has the effect of killing uh, the goose that lays the golden eggs for China. What, what, what do you think, Misha? Well, I think you're raising you know, a, a great question about the incredibly difficult geopolitical calculations that Xi Jinping has to make. Um, as you said, just now killing uh, the goose that lays the golden egg, you know, really is only part of it. I mean, um, if uh, the, the PLA moves into Hong Kong, uh, there's no way that the world doesn't see it in all its brutality. Uh, you know, we, we're still digging up little bits and pieces of footage from Tiananmen because I was in the heart of China, but there's just no, there's no possible way you can draw a screen across you know, Hong Kong and, and hide from the world what would happen. So uh, I think that it, um, for many in the leadership, uh, they, they're caught uh, between Scylla and Charybdis. Uh, this is both an existential threat to some degree, because if you let it succeed in Hong Kong, then you've got to think about um, you got to think about Taiwan, you've got to think about Xinjiang, you've got to think about Tibet. Um, but if you crush it, then you will be the butchers of Beijing in a, for an entirely new generation. So I, I think that Xi Jinping is really caught on the horns of a dilemma. Hey, I see that. I, I, I think if a different set of leaders were in charge in Beijing, you could see a different kind of outcome. What worries me is that she 
uh, has seems to, seems to place the stability of the regime and the control of the Communist Party over things like uh, economic growth, <laughs> transparency, building right. a state political system. I mean, that, that's what he was doing before Hong Kong happened. And so I think I worry. It just seems to me, based on what he's done before, uh, he's willing to sacrifice all the benefits of having Hong Kong part of China in order to stop a kind, uh, any kind of spread of political resistance that could destabilize the regime and all the other parts of China that you just uh, mentioned. And that's why I don't see uh, a you know, happy outcome, because I don't see where the what the protesters want and what the Xi, Xi regime wants overlapping. Uh, and you're right. So suppose, let's play it out. Suppose Xi and the, sends the PLA in or the police are authorized to use force and they start putting the protest down violently, as we saw in, in Tiananmen. Uh, what happens? Uh, well, you know, the Chinese leadership may say, well, what really happened after Tiananmen? We continued to grow. People put some sanctions on us, but they didn't really exclude China from the world economy. We were still able to funnel benefits to the population to justify our political control. We wouldn't expect anything else. You know, if anything, China is now more powerful, more integrated in the world economy. President Xi would say, we're already in a trade war with Trump, and he doesn't even care about Hong Kong. How much worse are things going to get? Uh, at the same time, we'll be able to, you know, show that these other separatist movements, these other challenges to our leadership are not going to go anywhere. No, I, I think that's that's right. And and you've you've put your finger on the key point of the new China under Xi Jinping, which is that it is uh, all about making the party uh, completely supreme once again. I mean, we, we've got to get our heads away from thinking about China the way we have for the past 30 years under Deng Xiaoping and Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, uh, in which there was a space that was being created, not democracy, but a space that was being created between the party and government and civil society, uh, still communist, but that that they were to operate uh, within their own spheres in, to some degree. And she has collapsed all that. We are back to uh, the party being uh, the, the dominant force uh, in society and an ideologically dominant force. So if, if it is true, and I think it is, and you're correct, that that for him is the overriding uh, objective. And, and from that perspective, it's then existential, uh, that the authority of the party not uh, take a blow of failing to control these, uh, these demonstrations, or let alone a Hong Kong that suddenly somehow miraculously carves out a, a space of, of autonomy for itself. You have to then ask, has she thought it all through carefully enough, right? Is the one, the the control and dominance of the party privileging real uh, analysis and assessment of what will happen if you go in and what will it be like uh, in terms of relations with the rest of the world, other parts of China? And one other last point to make about this briefly is that, um, that that's, that's sort of the meta level of the state, right? This is also a major challenge to Xi Jinping himself um, and his rule. And, and you don't want to separate Xi too much from the party or Xi from those around him. But there are factions. There is still the Hu Jintao faction. There's still the Jiang Zemin faction in China, uh, in Beijing, in the leadership. These are the people that uh, were the targets of Xi's anti-corruption campaign since he came to power in 2012. Uh, Xi 
is in a sense damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. Right? If he if he doesn't go in, uh, he can become known as the man who lost Hong Kong. And if he does go in, then he's known as the butcher of Hong Kong. Uh, and so from a domestic political perspective, uh, this is actually a very fraught period for Xi internally as well. Hmm. Interesting. So let's, uh, I'm sure we're going to be talking about Hong Kong again in our future podcast, but let's turn to, uh, I think, uh, and close the show with this uh, wonderful piece you wrote, Misha, about some of the things that do challenge the Chinese regime. And you wrote a piece about uh, the pork prices going up in China due to this uh, swine epidemic that has resulted in uh, the deaths of a lot of the pig population in China. So all I have to say, my first comment is I think it's rare, but I think the Wall Street Journal editors missed a great, great opportunity for a wonderful headline, which should have said, when pigs die rather than when pigs fly. But that was, well, they missed their chance. Well, so tell I, us about I, the article I appreciate and your that. argument. <laughs> well, first of all, on, on headlines, I originally entitled it, Let Them Eat Steak, <laughs> as, right, as opposed to Let Them Eat Cake. And, and I wanted to describe it, and, and I hope my friends at the Wall Street Journal won't you know, now ban me forever because they didn't want to use this. I wanted to call it China's Porkopolips. Or Porkamageddon. <laughs> Porkamageddon. No one, no one liked it, and I, you know, I, I wanted to just. Uh, that's why you got to have your own blog. You got to write it your own <laughs> way. Uh, no, I mean, what we're facing, it's, it's actually, um, it's starting to get a little bit of attention. But there is, since the uh, the last century, African swine fever has uh, flared up uh, around the world. It it has no um, cure. There is no vaccine for it, and there is no cure. So if a pig gets sick with African swine fever. It dies. And African swine fever is a hemorrhagic disease. It's like Ebola for pigs, right? So they bleed out of their orifices and um, there's there's no way to save them. Um, but in particular, uh, ASF, African swine fever, has been raging for the past decade or so. Uh, and it's been across Eurasia. It's in Europe. Uh, it has been in Russia. But it has taken root over the past uh, two years or so in particular, two or three years in China. China, before ASF hit, had 300 million homes. Uh, the estimates uh, today is that they have about half of that right now, meaning 150 million hogs have either been culled, uh, destroyed because they're part of an infected population, or they have been infected and they have died. Uh, this is this is a potential uh, catastrophe, uh, especially and particularly if this made the leap over to the United States. It comes through infected grain uh, or infected um, uh, pig uh, offal and refuse that is put into grain and then, and then they eat it. Um, this could be a, a true, uh, you know, really a porkopolis around around the world. And for so China, it's particularly- pork so important in China? Right. I mean, if so half the pork population were, pig population were to die in the United States, it, it wouldn't, destabilize the regime. We just eat more hamburgers and less McRibs, exactly. despite the fact that McRib tastes so much better. <laughs> uh, I was I was just about, well, isn't, wait, isn't McRib pork? Yeah. Well, so we have arguments about exactly what it is, but tastes like it. Well, as, as, as a non-McRib eater, I leave it to you. But yeah, I was actually just about to mention because pork is the major uh, meat protein in China, accounting for 60% 
of its proteins. So you're taking away an enormous and affordable protein uh, for people. Now, this is not going to affect the millionaires and the billionaires. It's going to affect the people that the Communist Party worries about, the the farmers out in the, the countryside and the peasants and the urban poor. Uh, you're asking them to pay much higher pork prices. Pork prices are up at least uh, a quarter to a third right now, but they're estimated to go up to uh, as much as 70 percent this year. Uh, the pork stocks that they have, the 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 you know, in supply will uh, be drawn down and disappear sometime around next year. And that's when you really could see this biting is that people uh, are going to be faced with either paying e- enormously more expensive uh, prices for pork um, or having to make a switch to other protein, which they, you know, they they may or may not want to do chicken, beef and the like. But just two scenarios. One is that ASF uh, African swine fever jumps to the United States. So suddenly you can't get pork uh, in the United States, you know, because we're dealing with it here. That that could be one where the Chinese, no matter what they're willing to pay, can't get enough pork. And number two, China is always racked by other animal uh, um, flus and, and fevers, uh, such as avian flu. And so just imagine if you get an, a major outbreak of an avian flu or uh, hoof and mouth disease combined with this, suddenly you're talking about the ability not to get a meat protein and what that could mean. And and you look back to 1789 in France and 1917 in Russia, That's and what you I was know raise, was that, that food drives revolution. Yeah, there's always been this account of the big revolutions as being sparked by uh, a wild increase in commodity prices and food shortages. And you said the French that's Revolution, right. Russian Revolution. Do you think that's something possible here or that, you know, one thing we have now that they didn't have back in those years was this globalized commodities network where, yeah, the pork stocks can collapse in China, but they can just start buying a lot more from the United States uh, in a weird way, not a weird way, but it it, it sort of uh, amplifies actually American trade sanctions on our ability to coerce China, given that they're going to need to be a huge net importer of agricultural products because of what you're talking about. Yeah, well, they've already been buying up a, a lot more pork. In fact, they, you know, because of the trade war, they've been going back and forth. They've they've announced pork orders and canceled them. But but they imported, uh, I think it was about 146,000 metric tons of pork just in the first quarter uh, alone. And trust me, if the people are hungry, uh, they may not publicize it, but they'll be buying, you know, they'll be buying pork in order to feed in order to feed their people. So um, there are these geopolitical uh, implications or political implications of, of how the U.S. and China would deal with this in the midst of a, um, you know, in the midst of a, of a trade war. Um, but for the most part, we rarely hold food hostage to what we what we would consider a humanitarian issue. And this this could get to that. But I think more importantly is the fact that um, you just have no idea how bad this is going to get and how the people of China themselves will react. We may think, sure, you just switch to chicken. Well, you know, that could set people off who are already upset about a lot of other things, such as environmental pollution, corruption within the party, the lack of civil society. You do, we don't know what is going to be the match that sets off uh, the tinder that's been gathering in in a China that is more repressive? And so this is something that they're very worried about. And like the SARS epidemic in 2003, um, the Chinese are beginning to blame the government for incompetently dealing with it. So this this could be a, a type of black swan. We just don't see it happening. And then before you know it, wham, you've got massive protests that that begin to spread.
Yeah, it's always uh, it's sort of a authoritarian's uh, version of Hayek. You know, remember famously Hayek said central planners can't replace the market because there's just too many people, decisions, uh, price signals, and so on to control. And if you think about uh, an authoritarian regime like Xi's, how are they going to control everything? Not just pork prices, all the prices for all the proteins, and then all the other agricultural prices. If they can't manage that, then it'll uh, potentially undermine their claim to legitimacy and controlling every other aspect. And, and to me, just my personal bias is I still, despite the increases in technology and despite globalization of the economy, I still think it's outside the control of central planners to manage a whole economy and society the way the Chinese are trying to do. But maybe well, on that note, yeah. <laughs> well, you yes, had the last word. Absolutely. No, no, no. I was, I was just going to say, you know, that, that actually gets to this whole history of post-Mao China and the attempt to uh, figure out a way to let, uh, under Deng Xiaoping and, and Jiang Zemin in particular, let the market grow uh, so that they didn't precisely have to get into that trap that you just identified uh, in a country as big as China of trying to control everything. Where Xi Jinping is going is this, the, you know, the reverse of Gorbachev. He's, he is uh, keeping, he is crap, cracking down completely on all of the politics and social society. Uh, well, that's, uh, you know, cracking down on, on civil society and social society, civil society, uh, while trying to figure out how much they get involved in the economy or at a minimum how little they have to reform and and so you're right that that is really at the crux of the problem that they face right now great well thank you uh, misha thanks for all of you for joining us and we welcome you to our next episode and we promise it will not be three months until we are back so on behalf of misha oslin and the hoover institution thank you very much for joining the Pacific Century. Bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.